break the law, you're disqualified for eternal life, right? For the wages of sin is death. So if you want eternal life, this is who you have to be. Which again, as Laura said, that points us to a savior because we can't keep the law. The law can't save us. We can't do it. We need somebody who can save us. But it teaches us what God ordained about eternal life, and it shows us what we're looking for. It's giving us a picture of what we're looking for when the Messiah comes, when the new covenant comes, because this is, remember, it's all a type. It's all a foreshadowing teaching us what we're looking for. The law does not save. If you've been with us on Sunday mornings, Pastor Brian's been making that so clear in our study in Galatians. The law does not save. It points to that which does save. It's like an exit sign. There's a fire in the building. There's the exit sign. If I admire the exit sign, it doesn't do any good for me. I have to go out the exit, right? You, it's, it points us to what saves. So then the, the law, what else I want us to understand about the law, and we're going to see the Ten Commandments, is all of the law is based on principles found in Genesis 1 through 3. All of the law is based on principles found in Genesis 1 through 3. Why does that matter? Because the principles apply to our life. Often as believers, we can say, the law doesn't apply to me. What is it? it doesn't relate to me. Why do I have to know these details? It's not applicable to me. The application of the law has changed. We are not under it. Again, made so clear in the New Testament. We're not under the law. But the law takes these principles and it applies them. But if the principles don't change and we're under the principles, the law can still teach us who our God is, teach us theology about our God, and show us how to make right application to it now. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul, right? Psalm 19 says, all scripture is profitable and God breathed. The law is profitable for us because it is based in principles found in Genesis 1 through 3. And I'm just going to show us that. We're going to walk through and see how this is true. So in Exodus 20, um, first command, it says, verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. What happened in Genesis 1? In the beginning, God, God created Okay, God created the world. He is outside his creation. He is above everything. He is central to everything. Everything is dependent on him. So we shall have no other gods. We will not have any other gods, because there is only one God who is central to everything, who made everything, and everything else is under him. See the principle in Genesis 1? Application and the command. It's in command number 2. You shall have no graven images. Listen as I read verse 4. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, creation language, or that is in the earth beneath, creation language, or that is under the earth. All of these are the ways God created. You shall not bow down or serve them, for I and the Lord your God am a jealous God. God is outside of his creation. He is the creator, and we can't bring him down to our level. He made us in his image. We don't make God in our image. We maintain the distinction between creator and and creature. Principle in Genesis 1, application the law. You will have no idols. You seeing the correlation? It's in number three. You shall not take the name of the, the Lord your God in vain. Over, I counted it 32 times, I believe, in Genesis 1, it says, and God said, or God did, or God's name is repeated over and over and over again, Elohim. And this goes back to what Laura taught us about Yahweh. We are to live in light of God's revealed character. God's name is his essence, and we don't take his name in vain. Principle in Genesis 1, his revealed name, application in the law. The Sabbath makes it very clear. If you want to follow along in verse 11, for in six days, just straight out saying this, this goes to creation, right? In six days the Lord made heaven and earth and the sea, 
and all that is in them and rested the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. What is this tied to? God has an agenda. God has a plan. He made creation. He made creation with a plan for us to serve him, obey him, and follow his ways. We are to rest and abide in God's agenda. We are to rest and to abide in God's agenda. Then number five, where we honor our parents, if we can honor and obey the authority that God has, is in our life, then we obey the authorities and structures that he has established in our life. When we get to 6 through 10, we shift from Genesis 1 to Genesis 3. Thou shalt not murder. God said, right, that man is made in my image, and that's why we value life. Our God is a God of life, not a God of death. He is a God who created life, who is saving us for eternal life. Death has come because of violations of his law and his kingdom and sin, right? He is a God of life. We don't murder. And, we saw, and, that's, and that entered the world through the fall. You don't commit adultery. God created marriage, and you follow his laws for holiness and purity. You don't steal as in Adam stole the fruit that he was forbidden to eat. That was God's fruit. He wasn't supposed to eat it. You don't lie like Adam did when he said, the woman made me do it. And when it says she co we don't covet, that is the word to describe what Eve did when she looked at the fruit of the tree and wanted to eat it. So all of those are just examples that the, the principles are in Genesis 1 through 3. And so while the application of the law in some cases has changed, many of these do directly apply to us, don't they? They're repeated in the New Testament, and the application is so tied to the principle that we don't separate them, like take, make, having no idols, right? And, and God is central. We are still under those principles, and the law is to teach us about God and applying them. And the rest of the law, all the ceremonial laws, Levitical, that's expounding on the Ten Commandments. Okay, so these laws expounded. When you get into the rules about oxes falling in a ditch, that comes back to the Ten Commandments. They all are related. So we have to understand that the principles are found in creation. The principles do not change, though the application can. We are not under the law, but we are under the principles. And Israel is, to borrow the phrase, an anti-fall nation. What does that mean? They are supposed to be showing to the world and living out a message of what God intended in creation. So God is making them a picture to the world of this is what I intended in creation. This is what I'm redeeming you back to. I'm going to take you back to Eden. And so they are supposed to represent these values to the world to reach them. So it comes to, that's the law. Uh, the rest of it's going to be an exposition. Moses, we're going to finish our review here. I know, we're still in the review. Moses is going to come off the mountain, and that brings us to Exodus 34. It comes off the mountain, the golden calf. They broke all the Ten Commandments in the golden calf. So God has given the law, and immediately all ten are broken. What happens when you break the law? You die. So now the nation is facing their greatest threat yet. They are under the judgment of God. He should wipe them out. And we see the plagues. We see the Levites going through and killing the idolaters. And then God raises up a mediator, one who stands for the people in Moses, right? And, and Laura walked us through how he interceded and he pleaded and he, he prayed for the people and God answered his prayer and he shows us an important element of redemption in Exodus 34. Remember when we were talking in Genesis about the double name call when it said Abraham, Abraham right before? Whenever you see the double name call, we're supposed to pay attention. Exodus 34, 8. The Lord, sorry. Oh, it is an 8. Um, the Lord, the Lord. The double name call again, just like Abraham, Abraham, Moses, Moses at the burning bush, the Lord, the Lord. And he's going to tell us something important now, a God merciful 
What does this mercy mean? It means that he is compassionate like a mother to his child, to her child. That is the kind of mercy being pictured, like a mother to her child who understands what his people go through. A God merciful and kind, that means he proactively does what is good for his people. He proactively does what is good for his people. Slow to anger, that means he is very patient. And abounding in steadfast love. Steadfast love is the Old Testament word and the Hebrew word for grace. This is where we understand and begin a theology of grace. God's grace, Professor Chow says, is God's proactive intervention for our good, where he does everything. It is an enormous extension of his power. The example would be in the New Testament, like when God stills the storm, right? It's this enormous extension of his power where God is turning the world upside down to keep his promises because God is faithful, and he always remembers his promises, and he always keeps them. And then that brings us to forgiving. He forgives iniquities, trespasses, and sins. Why three words for sin? Because God forgives all kinds of sin. And Pastor Brian has reminded, of that, of, reminded us of this the past two Sundays. This Sunday, he reminded us in Titus that there is not a sin that we, God doesn't forgive. And then the Sunday before, he gave the example of the girl he counseled who said, Pastor, you don't know what I've done. God can't forgive this. He said, yes, he can. God, right here, Exodus 34, he forgives all kinds of sin. And that's what is new in this redemptive thread. Forgiveness has always been part of the plan of redemption. You have to be redeemed by blood, but God is going to forgive. And he reveals this in his character. But he will by no means clear the guilty. It's not an unjust forgiveness. It's a just forgiveness. Well, we're going to look more at how it can be just when we get to Leviticus. So just if you have questions on that, hold them. We'll get there. But God forgives them, and we see that right away. What does he do? He renews the covenant. He renews the covenant, and he builds the tabernacle. I gave you guys all handouts on the tabernacle, so we're not going to go through all the, the elements of the tabernacle, what they each represented. Please look at your handout. Please read it carefully. It's in there. But I wanted to talk about the big picture of the tabernacle and what the tabernacle represented to the nations and to Israel. Listen as I read from Kenneth Turner's chat. Um, chapter on Exodus in the book, What the Old Testament Authors Really Cared About. He says, modern readers wonder why the tabernacle occupies 13 chapters in this book. Why was it so important? Every painstaking detail of building instructions and construction points in one direction. The glory of Yahweh that filled the tabernacle was to be taken seriously. The tabernacle is patterned after the heavenly archetype um, sorry, I said that wrong. Patterned after the heavenly archetype, the tabernacle was also God's sanctuary, and God's presence with His people was reactualized. To, of the, was a reactualization of the original creation. This structure was heaven on earth, Eden in a fallen world. This connection is highlighted in the seven speeches on the tabernacle. All seven speeches, paralleling the seven days of creation, begin with the Lord said to Moses. The sixth speech sets apart two humans to oversee the building project, and the seventh calls Israel to keep the Sabbath. And then a full list of all the other links to, to um, Eden, all the other potential links would include the various fabrics and curtain designs, the cherubim and the golden lampstand representing the tree of life. The tabernacle was the climax of the covenant at Sinai, enabling God's original presence with humanity and his presence with Israel on the mountain to remain with the people in the promised land. The tabernacle pictured and said to the world, this is Eden. And scholars agree that it, because of the culture of the ancient Near East, the, the foreign nations who weren't believers, they would have known 
that's a picture of Eden. That, that's what they're representing. Even the, even the unbelieving na nations would have seen the tabernacle and known Eden. God is, Israel's an anti-fall nation. God is showing them, I can take us back to Eden. But in following all of these threads, following the kingdom and the seed and the Abrahamic covenant and what the law accomplishes, we can get caught up and we can lose sight of a very critical element, the holiness of God. Because holiness is critical to redemption. And that's going to bring us to the book of Leviticus. As the book of Exodus closes, we have God dwelling with his people. But as we've already seen, if they break the law, they have to die. So how does a holy God live with a holy people and they don't get wiped out? And that's what the book of Leviticus is going to answer for us. So as we go into Leviticus today, thank you for your patience as we tied all of those things together. As we go into Leviticus, here's our purpose statement. We're going to see the holiness of God and the holiness he demands of his people. We're going to see the holiness of God and the holiness that he demands of his people. Leviticus is such a detailed book that I am borrowing the outline and some of my summary statements from Professor Chow's lectures on the Old Testament at the Master's University. So there's my blanket credit as we go through this for what we're going to cover. As we go into Leviticus, just a couple of things, overall arching themes of the book. John MacArthur says that the core ideas around which Leviticus develops are the holy character of God and the will of God for Israel's holiness. Over 50 times, the motive for holiness is stated in the repeated phrase, I am the Lord and I am holy. Why are we holy? Because God is holy. We saw in our lesson in Isaiah 6 and Revelation 4, what do the angels proclaim all the time? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, right? The whole earth is filled with his glory. They're doing it in Isaiah. 800 years later, when John has his vision, they're doing the same thing. They do it all day, every day, for all time. That's God's holiness. That is what they're proclaiming. Why that attribute? Because this is the transcendental attribute, A.W. Pink says. It's the attribute that runs through the rest of them and casts luster upon them. It is the attribute of attributes. In fact, we use holiness to describe God's attribute. We would say with his holy hand or his holy love or the beauty of his holiness. It is the attribute that runs through all the attributes. Stephen Charnock says his name, which signifies all of his attributes in conjunction, is holy. Remember he said God's name is his essence, and we call his name holy. So it's the attribute that runs through them all and that is transcendent over all of them. So remember we talked about how is God going to be forgiving and holy and just and redo that? Leviticus is going to answer that by showing us the sacrificial system. So here we are, Leviticus chapter 1. And we're going to look right now at the five major sacrifices. In chapter 1, 2, and 3, we see the, the, law, the sacrifice for the burnt offering, the sacrifice for the grain offering, and the sacrifice for the peace offering. And we're just going to talk about what each of these represented. Those three sacrifices altogether, they were for worship. They weren't for sin. So later, just sometimes this is, people wonder about this, later, after Christ has died, right, once and for all for sin, but then later on in Revelation, it says they make sacrifices. Why are we making sacrifices? It's for worship, not for sin. So here are their sacrifices for worship, and three of the five are about worship. Note where the emphasis is, because life is not just about getting rid of our sin. God doesn't want us to be neutral. It's about getting rid of our sin and being righteous, getting rid of our sin and being holy so that we can be in right relationship with him. So in chapter one, we see the whole burnt offering, 
And this represents complete and total consecration to God, 100% dedication. Remember going back to that slave language? They are God's slaves. They are 100% in this covenant relationship and need to be 100% dedicated to their God, their king. Chapter 2 is the grain offering, and this is thanks for God's provision. This is an offering of thankfulness for what God has provided. Chapter 3 is a peace offering, which is a celebration of their relationship with God and their relationship with others. And we see the law reflected in that, because you can summarize the law, right? In love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. You have a right relationship with God. You have a right relationship with others. That's the peace offering. And all three of these together are offerings for worship. And they teach us what holiness and worship means. Again, listen as I quote Professor Chow, and listen for each of the descriptions of these offerings and his definition. What does holiness mean? Total dedication, immense thankfulness as you worship God for all of his provisions, recognizing God's centrality in everything. It's real relationship with him where you are dedicated to him and also loving others. This is the nature of the worship system. And I'd say it's very much what our worship is, that we don't offer sacrifices, but we are to be fully dedicated to the Lord. We're to be thankful for what he has given us, and we are to love God and to love others. This is holiness, and this is worship. Chapter 4 and chapter 5, so that's kind of our first point. We have to be holy in worship. Chapter 4 and chapter 5 cover sin offerings. There is no offering for intentional sin. If you intend to sin, there's no offering for it. What's intentional sin? Premeditated sin. You, sin you planned on doing. So there's unintentional sin. You don't know you violated the law or you messed up and you made a mistake. And that's chapter 4 where you offer offerings for unintentional sin. There is the chapter 5, guilt offerings. And that would be m make reparation for something you've done wrong. So I ran a stoplight. I was breaking the law. I hit your car. I didn't mean to. I got distracted, right? I hit your car and now your car is damaged. I have to make that right. Not only did I break the law, I had to make a sacrifice for that, but I need to pay you for your car and fix your car. It's a reparation. That's what the guilt offerings are doing. And then, um, again, no offering for intentional sin. Psalm 51, 16 makes this clear. When David killed Uriah, very premeditated, he says, if there was an offering, if there was a sacrifice, I would offer it. There was no sacrifice for him to offer for killing Uriah. There was none. So it's already starting to point to us that we're going to need something more right, than just what is here. So, we saw first three sacrifices, we have to be holy in our worship. Second two sacrifices, our sin separates us from God, and so we have to be, we have to be cleansed of that to be holy. We have to be holy in how we deal with sin. Holy in our worship, holy in how we deal with sin. Which brings us to Leviticus chapter 10, verse 1. Read with me as we learn about Nadab and Abihu. Now, Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And the fire came out before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before all people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. And then in verse 6, And Moses said to Aaron and Eleazar and Ithmar, his sons, do not let the hair of your heads hang loose, and do not tear your clothes lest you die, and wrath come upon all the congregation, but let your brothers and the whole house of Israel bewail the burning that the Lord has kindled. What is happening here? That unauthorized fire, the text in Hebrew seems to indicate it was just a slight deviation from what they were supposed to do. 
God doesn't grade on a curve. You do what he says the way you say it, the way he says it. All right, what he says the way that he says it. Why can't Aaron and his sons mourn? Because you cannot object to God's holiness. They are the high priests. They are leading the people in worship. They violated the law. This was a just judgment of God. They can't manifest the people that what God did somehow was wrong. God's holiness is sovereign, and you cannot object to God's holiness. So the people are learning the significance of his holiness. Then in chapters 11 through 15, these are laws on ceremonial cleanliness, food, birth, health. What is the overarching theme that they're teaching us? We have to be holy in our preferences. Think about your relationship with your, your husband or your dating, your boyfriend. You died from your preferences to be closer to that person. My husband, I couldn't think of a great example, but if he loved war movies and I hated them, but he really wants to go see the latest one, I would go to the movie with him so I could go with him, right? I died in my preference to be with him. It actually usually happens where he'll end up watching a Hallmark Christmas movie with me, but you know, you, you die to your preference to be with to be with other person. The holier you are, the closer to God you become. These are things that aren't necessarily sinful, like childbirth, but God says, here's how you deal with them. And you have to die to God's preferences. Die to self and do God's preferences. Okay? So chapters 11 through 15, you have to be holy in your preferences. So we are holy in how we deal with sin. We are, sorry, holy in our worship, holy in how we deal with sin, and holy in our preferences. This brings us to chapter 16. A lot of people call this the sweet 16. Please remember, this is, the, this is the significant chapter of the book. If you get nothing else from today, chapter 16, Day of Atonement, critical chapter in Leviticus, key chapter. And this is the Day of Atonement. When I was in Israel, I got to, when I was in Israel, when I was in college, I got to spend a semester in Israel, and I was there for all of the fall feasts. And so this is how, where Israel starts their calendar year. It's in, I think, October, but and so we tend to think, oh, it's the middle of the year, but this is the beginning of their calendar year, and it starts with Yom Kippur, or the Day of Atonement. And this is a day where everything is reset. The slate is wiped clean, everything is made new. Because, you know, you don't even know. This is how significant our sin and God's holiness is. You, how many times can you go in the Holy of Holies? Once a year. What if you're, a, this is a tent in the desert. What if an animal, you know, climbs into the Holy of Holies and desecrates it? You don't know. Right? But all the sacrifices you've offered for the whole year, they're invalid because some, the altar was just made unclean. This is the day that everything is reset. And so first the priest is consecrated. Then the tabernacle is consecrated. Then the people are consecrated. Everything is wiped clean. The sacrifices are made for sin. And we see again that beautiful picture of substitute where you put your hand on the sacrifice saying, my sin is being transferred, you know, in a pictorial sense, to this animal, and they're dying in my place. That's even what the scapegoat represents. You put your hand on the scapegoat, and the scapegoat goes out into the wilderness, right? Representing the permanent removal of their sin. Like that goat is never coming back. Your sin is never coming back. Or as the psalmist say, your sin is removed as far as the east is from the west. So again, remember, actions speak louder than words. All of this theology is being acted out so that the world in Israel will know who God is. And then the priest, remember we talked in Genesis about corporate solidarity, what happens to the one happens to the many. The priest represents the people. They don't all go to the Holy of Holies, but the priest, the high priest, goes to the Holy of Holies once a year because you have to approach God the way he says you will approach him, but God is also giving us another picture, right, that we need a mediator. We need a high priest. 
And so the office of the priest is just like Moses was the office of the mediator. This office of priest is pointing us to, again, what Laura taught us last week, the law is pointing us to the Messiah, pointing us to who we're looking for. So, so as we come to the end of the Day of Atonement, we see that you'd be holy in worship, holy in how you deal with sins, holy in your preferences, that you need a high priest who's going to reset the system, who's going to represent you, who's going to go before the Lord for you. And then chapter 17 through 21 talk about holiness in life. Chapter 17 says that we have to reverence what makes us holy. Talks about where the sacrifices are made and the blood. Blood has to be shed for sin, right? So where the sacrifices are made and, wh and what we do with blood, those are the things that are used to purify the, these covenant people. So we have to reverence what is holy. Chapter 18 talks about personal morality. It again goes back to Genesis 1. Seems like everything goes back to Genesis 1. <laughs> but God made marriage. So just take the homosexuality law. He made one man, he made one woman. That's why we don't have homosexuality. Well, that's why it's forbidden in Genesis 1, because it's not what God created. It's the same with incest. It's the same with um, all the laws they go through in purity. They go back to what God created in Genesis 1. So you have to be holy in your morality, in your personal life. Holy with reverence what makes you holy, holy in your personal morality. Then in Exodus 19, again, we come back to why should we be holy? 19.2, you can read with me, speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, you shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. And I just underlined every time in chapter 19, it said, I the, and the Lord your God. I think I counted 17, I forgot to write it down. But basically, he gives a command, and why? Because I am the Lord your God. You're my people, I'm your God. I define these things. I determine how you will be. You're my slaves, right? You belong to me. But it's a, it's a it's a, it's a slavery of freedom. It's a slavery of life. It's a slavery that takes you from bondage to Pharaoh to the promised land. It's not slavery like we'd think of it in a negative way, right? It's from death to life. So he's holy. And then in chapter one, 21, those who serve the Lord must be holy. Those who serve the Lord must be holy. So we're holy in worship. We are holy in how we deal with sin. We are holy in our preferences. We are holy in our approach to God. We reverence what is holy. We are holy in our personal purity. We are those who serve the Lord, chapter 21, the priests. If you serve the Lord, you're holy in your service to God. Why? Because God is holy. That brings us to the feast system and the cycle of feasts. And what does this teach us? God controls our calendar. God controls our time. This is how Israel is supposed to come together. This was commanded of them to do. Our time must be holy. Our time belongs to the Lord. The worship system showed the cycle of history, that there is a beginning and that there is an end. It shows that we're going to be, you know, in the, in the Day of Atonement, we're going to be, we have to be right with God. We have to be holy with God. But then the key feasts point not only to what God has done in the past, but what he, where we're going in the future. So Passover, okay, points to the redemption in Exodus. But it also points to what Christ did in and dying on Passover, right, as our Passover lamb, but also when he took communion, well, it wasn't called communion then, so he took Passover and made it communion in the New Testament, right? He reset the system, didn't he? Just like Yom Kippur reset the system, he created the new covenant. This is the new covenant in my blood. He reset the system. He created the new covenant, and he became the Passover lamb. So Passover shows us his redemption, but it also brings us to the new covenant, then first fruits, the feast of first fruits, is also called the feast of Pentecost, because 
on Pentecost, which happened at the time of first fruits, that feast 40 days later, the church receives the Holy Spirit. The church is born. And throughout the epistles in the New Testament, the church is called the first fruits. So Pentecost is being fulfilled in the church in the first fruits, though obviously there's still even yet much more of a harvest to bring in. And then we have Sukkot, or the Feast of Booths, pointing to their time in the wilderness. Israel was in exile in the wilderness, right? They lived in tents. But God completed his promise to them, and he brought them to the promised land, didn't he? They're not still, well, they, you know, he, he finished what he started. Israel, and we're going to see this when we get to the prophets, they're in a second exile right now. They're in a second exile, and just like he brought them in the first time, he's going to bring them in a second time. So this has a future fulfillment. So the cycles are showing us what's happening in history, but it also shows us that God controls our time. So we have to be holy in worship, holy in how we deal with sin, holy in our preferences, holy in our approach to God. We have to reverence what is holy, be holy in our personal purity. We have to serve the Lord in holiness. We have to be holy in our time because God is holy. And then Leviticus 26 and 27 close out the book, and we saw this in the lecture the blessings and curses reinforce what God is teaching, and it teaches us the nature of obedience and the nature of disobedience. So you obey, and we saw just how wonderful were the blessings. You're going to have security and bounty and wealth and all this great stuff, right? But the key is in verse 12, and it says, And I will walk among you and will be your God, and you shall be my people. That word walk, that's the word walk in the garden. In Genesis, when he walked with Adam and Eve, that's the word with Enoch, when he walked with God and he was no more. When you walk with God in holiness, that's how you get back to Eden. That's how you get back to Eden. Again, Professor Chow says that holiness has massive power because it brings us back to Eden. We can't go back without holiness. We can't. Israel couldn't stay in the land without holiness. We can't be right without God without holiness. What do the curses say? They say, come back, repent come back, repent, come turn to God. He's disciplining them and refining them so that they will come back to him. So I think it's clear, <laughs> the application of this, are we holy? I felt the weight of this all week. I called my husband one day, I was like, I think I can't teach this. <laughs> all I see is my sin, and I see it more and more, and it's just weighty and heavy as you're going through the, the holiness of God and how you're separated, and I just think, I just think I shouldn't do this. <laughs> it was just, and it reminded me of what Laura said about the Shekinah glory of the Lord filling the temp temple. It's a weighty glory. You see that, and you just saw a taste of how holy and how weighty God's glory is and how sinful we are. And so we have to ask ourselves, are we holy in our worship? You know, the God who burned up Nadab and Abihu, he's our God. He hasn't changed. We don't get to come to God on our terms. We don't get to come to God the way we want. We live in such a casual society that's so, what's good for you is good for you, and what's good for me is good for me, and don't get legalistic on me and say there's a way we have to do it. But God says there's a way you have to come to him. And even in the New Testament, in Corinthians, when the church took communion in a wrong way, some were sick unto death for how they took communion, right? We have, have the same God. Are we approaching him the way he says that we need to approach him? What about our time? I mean, it's so easy today to press a button on your phone and be lost in Pinterest and Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. Are we holy in our time? Are we holy in our preferences? Are the things that we choose to do with our Christian liberty, are they holy? Are we holy in our relationships? And are we helping our relationships become more holy? 
As we think about this, the thing that kept coming to my mind, and I know I've said it before, I think the biggest threat in many ways to our holiness is busyness. Kevin DeYoung says busyness covers up the rot in our soul. You can feel the weight of it, and then you can distract yourself all day long every day with plenty of things to do. You have to almost have your own day of atonement. You have to have a day and time that you set aside, that you meditate, that you pray, that you evaluate your life, that you put aside the distractions, and that you look and examine your life and where you need to grow in holiness. There are a couple really helpful, accessible, short, easy to read, fun books, I'd even say, they're, they're written that help with this, because I don't have time to go into it, but Carolyn uh, Mahaney's Shopping for Time, very practical, and just how to have retreats that help you evaluate your life. Um, Kevin DeYoung's Crazy Busy, very practical, again, on the same issue, and Tim Challey's Do More Better. Again, they just break this down into practical steps that seems overwhelming to you to think about how to do it. They just, very practical, and with humor and with grace, they write about this. So Do More Better, Tim Challey's, um, Crazy Busy, Kevin DeYoung, Shopping for Time, Carolyn Mahaney. So we have to be people who take time to evaluate the holiness in our lives. So let's close in prayer. Oh, sorry. My husband said, you can't leave them there. <laughs> you have to remind them that there's a Savior. And, and I meant to. <laughs> he's like, that's really heavy. <laughs> and then it's like, oh, we're done. And he's right. We aren't holy. And that's what this is all pointing to, right? It's all pointing to Hebrews, that there's a great high priest who once and for all made atonement and sacrifice for us, who sat down at the right hand of the Father. He didn't have to leave and keep doing it. We don't have to have a holiness of our own. We have a holiness that was bought with the precious blood of Christ. And because it was bought for us, we want to seek to be perfect like he was perfect because of what he's done for us. But we can't accomplish it in the law, and we have great hope in him. Now let's pray. Father, I ask that you, the God of peace, would sanctify us completely, and that our whole spirit and soul and body would be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We know that you are faithful and that you keep your promises, so please continue the work in our lives to make us holy as you are holy, and thank you for our great high priest. Thank you for his perfect sacrifice. Thank you for his atonement. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.